welcome to Element. Uh, just, I'm going to give my normal yearly spiel that I give because today is Halloween. So let me just give it to you. Uh, first off, uh, Satan doesn't own Halloween. Jesus owns every day, okay? So it's not like, oh, this is Satan's holiday. It is not Satan's holiday. Jesus owns it. And what we would like you to do is connect to your neighbors. I know there's a lot of, and there, I have, well, I don't know how to say this without sounding offensive. I'm not trying to be offensive at all. But a lot of people like to take their kids and let's go do trunk or treat at this place. Guys, I got to tell you, you're always telling your kids not to talk to strangers unless there's a stranger with candy in his trunk open. No, no. That's the weirdest thing in the world. Oh, he's got candy in a trunk. I know what this is. No, it's, it, it's just weird. And people are like, we're going to have a fall festival. Fall festivals are much more pagan in name than anything. Just do this. This would be, I mean, go to those things if you really want to. But I would say, if you have kids, go trick-or-treating to neighbors' homes. I mean, don't dress your kids up like demons and blood and brains hanging out or anything like that. But dress your kids up. Go to people's houses. Ring their doorbell. They're going to open their door, and they're going to give your kids candy. You get to go, hi, I'm your neighbor. You're my neighbor? Yes. You never come out of your house, but you're opening the door tonight. So, hello. <laughs> and you get, this is like one of the few holidays that we have that people can get to know their neighbors, and it's not weird. So, and if you don't have kids, open up your home and hand out candy, good candy. I was buying some candy at Smart and Final on Friday, and there was a guy there buying a bag of those tiny little Tootsie Rolls. And I'm like, what are you, and I actually said this. I go, what are you doing? Well, my grandson likes the Tootsie Roll Pops. And I go, Pops, not Tootsie Rolls. I said, be a, be a great neighbor and hand out things better than just Tootsie Rolls. By the way, my name is Michael Reed, and I work at Element Church. No. <laughs> no, I, I, I didn't say that, but I did say buy better candy for these kids. But you should. You should hand out good candy. So when kids are like, who lives there? I don't know, but they must love Jesus because they hand out great candy. So hand out good candy. Now, having said all that, uh, my GC is doing a kickoff thing tonight at, at someone else's house that's not mine, so that's where I'm going to be. Some of you are very kind. I live kind of out in the middle of nowhere a little bit, and some of you will pack up your kids and bring them to my house and be like, because I hand out full-size bars, because I figure if you get that far, you're going to need the energy to get back. And so I, <laughs> so I try to hand out these full-size bars, but you guys, but no one really comes to my house. It's you guys packing your kids up and driving them over. So tonight, I'm going to be at the Slocum's house for a GC kickoff. I'm not going to be at my house, but I will be there, and I will have some full-size bars if you guys come by there. <sighs> That's my spiel. All right. All right. Hey, I'm here in person. <laughs> I got to tell you, last week was not intended to be by video. It ended up that way, and I'm just glad you guys uh, stick with it. Last thing is this. Uh, next week is time change. Time change. You're going to get an extra hour. It, it is great, unless you're like me and you're, and you're jet lagged already, so you're getting up at 4 and 5 in the morning as it is. I'm going to get up at 3 a.m. next week. But, but time change next week. Put on your calendar. If you show up at the normal time, you're going to be early. You can hang out with the bands we practice or whatever. We don't mind, but there you go. Welcome to Elman if you're new. That's how we roll. Uh, if you do not own a Bible, there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. If you're in the front row, they're on the communion tables around the room. 
and also on the communion tables are sermon notes. Now, our sermon notes, they're not like fill-in-the-blank things or stuff like that. What they are is there's a paragraph that reflects on what we talk about today, and then five days this week, you're going to get a question and then a prayer to kind of go along with that question to refocus on what we talk about. On the right side, you get some questions to ask friends or family. If you're in a gospel community, you can ask them there. And on the back, you get the psalm that we're covering, and the bottom, you get the verses that we are going through. If you have a smart device, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. You click on More and then events in version will come up by GPS in your smart device, and you will get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, and everything that goes with today's message. Uh, my name is Aaron, one of the pastors here. Sometimes i got to apologize for that, but why don't you stand with me <laughs> for the reading of God's Word. This is Psalm 127, verse 2, and it says this, It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Let's pray. Father, today we ask that you would teach us what it means to trust you and work with you in the world, that we would understand the grace that you provide. And walking with discipleship with you, we'd be a people who want to work in the world in ways that reflect who you are, that all the steps of our discipleship journey to this point would result in how we interact and work in the world. And again, so that you would be glorified and your people would live in joy. Amen. Have a seat. So we are doing this series called the Songs or the Psalms of Ascent. That is Psalm 120 through 134. And these songs were sung and meditated on by early travelers on their way to Jerusalem to celebrate one of the major feasts. We've been walking through these in an effort to understand what discipleship with God actually looks like step by step by step. And I'm kind of worried that as we go through each one, you guys may start to compartmentalize all these things. And we're not supposed to. These are all supposed to go hand in hand together as we walk this journey. We're just taking each week with one psalm to focus on them a little bit deeper. So far, we've looked at how discipleship starts in repentance. We return to who God calls us to be. We walk with Him. We stop listening to the lies that the world tells us and step into the second step of the journey, which is trust. We trust what God has said over everything else, so we walk with Him. And repentance and trust leads naturally into worshiping who God is. That's the third step that we take. We ascribe and acknowledge the worth of God in our lives. And because God is so worthy, we want then to be able to live like Him in the world, so we begin to serve others because God first served us in saving us. And that's the fourth step. Then we talk about how in our serving one another, out of that comes our witness of how we speak about Jesus, of how we treat those in the world around us. That witness is our lives in front of others. And then when we walk in that witness, we become a steadfast people. And steadfast does not mean we don't have any questions about anything. It means that through the hard times and the places we may feel persecution, we still walk with Jesus in those places, trusting him. And that leads us to be a steadfast people. And ultimately, out of the surety of knowing that God holds us, even when we are unsure, leads to a place of joy where we begin to be, man, God, look what you've done in my life. I'm so unstable. I'm so wobbly, yet you hold me. And that leads to this great place of joy. And let me briefly talk about joy because that was last week on video. And I keep saying that all these different things are kind of our steps of this journey of discipleship and joy is, but I don't know so much if, if joy is a requirement of discipleship. It's more like a consequence of it. And what I mean by that is we, you don't acquire joy like Pokemon. 
You don't want, you're not trying to catch them all or something like that. Joy comes as a byproduct of living a life with Christ himself. As we begin to walk every day with him, we see all that he does. And it starts to produce this deep joy in who we are. It's kind of like uh, cancer is a result of smoking or you grew up next to Chernobyl or something like that. That's a negative example. Uh, you go to work and you work hard, you get a paycheck or you... Uh, get a promotion or a raise. That's a byproduct of working well at your job. Joy kind of comes just as this byproduct of how we walk and live with Christ. Eugene Peterson writes this, We come to God and to the revelation of God's ways because none of us have it within ourselves except momentarily to be joyous. Joy is a product of abundance. It is the overflow of vitality. It is life working together harmoniously. It is exuberance and adequate sinners as we are. None of us can manage that for very long. And this is why we talk about these different steps of the discipleship journey, step by step by step, walking with God and this ascent to know more of who God is and how He then works in our lives. And we live our lives then under God's abundance rather than the, the poor, self-centered rule of our own desires. Today, too many people want to set God aside to run after all the things they think they want, and they end up being more destitute than ever. We think these things will satisfy me, and those things never satisfy satisfy us. Most of the time today, our society is really bored, and so we pay people to do certain things for us, like tell us jokes and tell us stories and perform dramatic actions in movies and, and write songs that make us feel something, because we want to feel less alone. But we are not a people who always live in relationship with the God that made us and knows us. And when we do that, we will feel less alone, because we're living as we are supposed to live. We are people who should step out into this world trusting God in each step of this journey because He is the one who holds us and knows us. And when we focus on ourselves instead of God, our lives become devastated. And again, this is why we go through these Psalms of Ascent. We are trying to reimagine what God is calling us into. And we can decide to live under the abundance of God or under the dictatorship of our own poor needs. But hopefully through each step of this, you're like, man, I want to live under the abundance of God. That's where we want to go. So today's Psalm of Ascent is Psalm 127. You can open your Bibles there. It's page 333 if you have an element Bible. And a lot of people focus on a lot of different things in this. But as I said, we are walking through kind of this older book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction by Eugene Peterson, where he takes these Hebrew Psalms and he translates them into the language of his day so that people would want to start to pray those again. His language of the day are, you know, a couple decades old now, but you still kind of get the gist of where he's going. And he focuses on the idea of work in this Psalm, because really, when you get to the place of joy in your discipleship journey, that should infect how we as a people begin to work in the world. So I'm going to read you his translation of Psalm 127. It says this, If God doesn't build the house, the builders only build shacks. If God doesn't guard the city, the night watchman might as well nap. It is useless to rise early and go to bed late and work your worried fingers to the bone. Don't you know he enjoys giving rest to those he loves? Don't you see that children are God's best gift, the fruit of the womb of his generous legacy? Like a warrior's fistful of arrows are the children of a vigorous youth. Oh, how blessed are you parents with your quivers full of children. Your enemies don't stand a chance against you. You'll sweep them right off your doorstep. Now, a lot of people, as you can see, take this psalm and they will talk about children or parenting because it does talk about children there being a gift from God. And when it talks about a fistful of arrows, that's 
a lot of kids. Your quiver is full. So much so that if someone tries to attack you, your kids will protect you, especially when you are older. J.D. Greer is someone who likes to focus on parenting in regard to this psalm. He does this whole push to be a better parent. He says that the longer he's a parent, the less confidence he is in being a parent. He says when he became, he became a pastor, he had zero kids and four great insights into parenting. And now he says he has four kids and zero great insights in, into parenting. But he does say a couple of good things. One of the best ones, I think, is that he says, in parenting, love is not enough. Like the Beatles' philosophy of all you need is love, it just doesn't work. Because most parents love their kids. If you ask parents, like on a scale of 1 to 10, how much do you love your kids, it'd be like 25. It's like right off the end of the scale. And yet sometimes they're terrible parents. And part of that is that we don't understand true love until we are actually walking in discipleship with God himself. God in love allows us to go through hard times because it grows us. And today we think loving our kids means shielding them from anything that might be difficult for them. And God is calling us to love our kids like he loves us. And it is hard work, which is where we're going with the psalm. If we're going to truly love kids, we need a heart like God's to know what God wants from us and how we raise children and how they are a gift. A lot of parenting books today, they are written to both parents, but really with a focus towards the, the moms. And I, I think this is because men tend to, when things get hard, they kind of find other things to do in their lives other than raise their kids. But in the Bible, a lot of parenting passages are written to both parents, but they have kind of an emphasis towards the men. You can read Ephesians 6, the whole book of Proverbs, and for a lot of men, what they do is they focus upon their work and not raising their family, their family on autopilot. And if a lot of guys worked at their jobs where they work at their family, they would really get fired because a good dad doesn't just provide food and shelter for their families. Family is meant to be our highest priority other than Christ or our weightiest responsibility. It is the most important mission field that parents have. And I could, again, do a whole sermon on parenting, but I'm not, uh, because all this relates together in how we work in our entire life, walking with God. Now, another way people have looked at this psalm is in regard to success, that unless God ultimately is in something, it's going to fail, which also works with work and parenting coming together. Wisdom literature, which is what the psalms are known as, are part of how to live in the world in a way that develops a relationship with God and one another and community and everything around us so that God would be glorified and we would live in joy. Psalms like 127, they are not geared towards priests or those who run the temple. It's geared towards normal, common, everyday people people just like us. And yes, I lump myself in with you. So the Bible is not meant just for holy men or monks or pastors or priests. It's for everyone to see the amazing work that God is doing in the world through messed up people. And it is only through restoring your relationships and discipleship with him that we will ever have the life that God intends for us to have. So I want to walk through the psalm with you out of the English Standard Version. Again, Psalm 127, page 333. We're going to walk each step of this together, okay? So it starts like this. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. So this starts with work. Work. There it is, right there. Work is a good thing. But we're to understand that no matter how we work, we are working for Jesus in the midst of it all. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Your paycheck may have a company name on it, but ultimately you're working for Jesus. That's why all these steps of discipleship make sense. When you get to the place where you're working your job, the joy that we have in our discipleship should infuse our work. And that could be swinging a hammer. It could be writing code for a website. It could be making burgers. It could be home loans. It could be tattooing. It could be really just anything. 
But what we do is we are working for Jesus himself and we learn and do this labor. The scripture teaches it is God who enables us to do our jobs the way that we do. And by if we always try to labor on our own for our own pleasure and glory, we will miss the beauty of how God intends for his people to work in the world in discipleship with him. Tim Keller actually says there are two motives that are mentioned in the Bible if our work is going to be glorifying to God and noble and humanizing to others. Number one, he says this, you have to work in response to human community. Uh, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 5 says, He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. Now, Proverbs is another book in this wisdom literature. And it's saying that a failure to work is not just a failure of self, it's a failure of the community that is around us because work is part of our community. And this is why the psalm goes where it goes in just a moment with children, because our lives are not compartmentalized where I got work here and I got friends over here and I got my family over here. It's, it all goes together. All of our lives are homogenous, whole, worshiping God in all that we do. Now, when you read through this verse, it says the word shame. Shame is the word for disgrace. And when we see the word disgrace, we really don't understand it in the context that it was written. Like we think shame and disgrace are the same thing, or uh, shame and guilt are the same thing, and they're not. Guilt is like failure to live up to a standard. When it says shame or disgrace here, that is a failure to the community. It's a failure to do for the community what you know you ought to do. And so one of the purposes of work is to help other people and the community around us. I think one of the saddest things today in our country is we are paying a lot of people not to work. And people who aren't working right now are getting very depressed. They're getting very upset about things around them. Because we were made to work and we don't work, we do get depressed. And we start looking for other things to be angry at. And we are meant to be a people who work hard and well. And so the Bible says we should both choose our work and conduct our work with God and community in mind. And so we do this with the gospel-centered mindset about what God first did for us. Unless the Lord builds the house, those, that's plural, who build it labor in vain. So, what if we chose and conducted our work with God and other people in mind? If we did it for the benefit of those around us, more than for profit, more than for personal advancement, not that you can't have profit, not that you can't have personal advancement, you can, but what if we did it more than just for ourselves? And really, the wisdom literature, it doesn't give you rules on the type of jobs you're allowed to have. I mean, I would say don't be a drug dealer. That's a good one, right? Don't be a drug dealer. But really, most jobs are allowable in the scriptures. And what the Psalms and the Proverbs do is ask us to be wise. And many jobs sometimes, depending on our situations and where we are, just aren't wise. The second thing Keller says is this. We're supposed to choose and do our work in response to God's calling. So what is that? Well, again, unless the Lord builds the house, that's where it goes. Now, there are a couple ways you could understand this. And a lot of times in the wisdom literature, we use this word called skilled. The word skilled really means gifted, that we are able to do what we do by the grace of God himself. A man or a woman has ability or talents, and those are gifts. And so the scriptures teach us to look at the things we enjoy doing. Look at the things that we are actually good at. Those aren't just accidents. Those are gifts from our creator. Your maker, by giving you what you have and what you enjoy doing, is calling you into work that fits your capacities. We get to do things that we are good at doing. Now, don't misunderstand me. That doesn't mean like, well, I hate my job, and you go quit your job tomorrow. That is not what I'm saying. You work at a job because they pay you. Sometimes they pay you because people wouldn't do it if nobody paid them. Nobody's going to pay you to sit around and eat ice cream and watch football and eat Cheetos all day because you do that for free already. <laughs> what I'm saying is 
There are times and places where maybe you have a job you don't really like, but they pay you to do it. But then you take those skills you are good at and you go and you volunteer places. You use them for the benefit of other people around you. If you have a job where you use the skills you're good at and you really enjoy it, praise God. You are probably one of the few in the world. Woo! <laughs> go you. But, but I got to tell you, we work a job and we use the skills God has given us to bless those around us no matter where we are. It's just like Colossians 3, 1 Corinthians 10 31 tells us, whatever we do, word or deed, do it all for the glory of God. And the gifts that God gives us and how we give our lives away are to find out how to bless God and others around us. And again, I think we can do just about anything in our lives and God is fine with it in terms of work. I think he is more concerned with how we do it. Because you can, you can sweep floors or be a doctor and do them both biblically. God's will is not a tiny little dot you've got to figure out and find. God's will is direction. It is serve and love and glorify. And in the end, because we're doing it with God, with due diligence, it is God who brings satisfaction. It is by God's grace we are what we are. All of our work in our lives will get done by God's grace and our hard work coming together. Work and grace are friends. Not that we work and God gives us more grace. Not that we work and God loves us more. It's that our work comes out of understanding the grace that God has first given to us. God's grace enables us to work. And that is why we work with joy. 1 Corinthians 15, 10, the apostle Paul says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. There was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. This is why in the steps, repentance, trust, worship. Then out of that, we come service and witness, and we're steadfast in joy, which infects our work. The psalm goes on. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And again, this is us and God living together, doing the work in the world. We are called to watch, but who ultimately watches everything? God himself. Right that. We watch, but God watches. We live in a world that is broken and messed up. And when I talk about work being good, I do not mean that work is not harder than it should be. Because of the fall, where we ran away from God and sinned against Him, God curses the ground under us. But He does it for a purpose. But it means that almost nothing is ever going to work out how you want. You're going to get to a place in your life one day, it's like, oh, I got my house done, my 401k is where it's supposed to be, and everything's, oh, it's all tidy, a little bow, and then your bow and your box is going to blow up. You'll be like, what's happening? And God's like, I'm blessing you. You're like, how is this a blessing? The reason that God does this is to show us how we fight him. I told you this a couple years ago. My mom's 70th birthday, we were doing it in my backyard. I had trimmed the, the shrubs, picked up the dog poo, cleaned everything up, and I went to mow the lawn. And I pull my lawnmower out, just, and it's like my last thing I got to do. And boom, I seize the engine and throw a rod. I'm like, ah, oh, how does this happen? I'm so angry, God, why? And God's like, that's how you treat me. It's like, what? And it is true. God will move us to places of grace and hope where we think we're walking so well, and then boom, we just go sideways. And God's like, the ground fights you like you fight me, but I love you, and I restore you, and I bring you back to myself. This is the understanding that we may labor, but God works for us to bring us to himself. We may watch, but God watches, which leads to the next line. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Again, this comes back to the idea that work is fruitless without God being at the center of all that we do. That step of the discipleship journey. Because we are people who are meant to understand that we sit under God's overarching grace in all that we do. And sometimes when we don't, we fret and we toss and we turn and we don't sleep. Verse 2 teaches you, 
Sleep is a gift from God. It's trying to say that we were made for meaningful work. And many times when we go sideways, sin causes us to make excuses and run from work. And then we don't sleep well. It's like I said numerous times, if you work and go into the workforce, you will spend upwards of 100,000 hours of your life at work. That's a lot. And that means it should connect to Jesus because he is over all. Your job should be part of God's work in the world, how we work, how we interact with others, the goods that come from our labors, how we worship Jesus in the midst of it. It all matters. Again, repentance and trust and worship and service and witness and steadfast and joy to work, it all goes together. Why do we trust God in the midst of our work? Because we follow a God who works hard and well. You get to the end of Genesis chapter one, God creates everything, he calls it very good. God doesn't get to the end of the work, we can go, yeah, that's close enough and then head off for a vacation. He works hard and well until it is done. In John chapter five, the religious leaders are going after Jesus again. And as they're going after, because Jesus heals somebody on the Sabbath, they're like, how dare you do this? And in John chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says, my father is working until now, and I am working. He makes himself equal with God. They want to kill him for saying these words. But what is Jesus saying? He is saying that God is working towards his glory and our good. God continues to work on behalf of his people. Genesis 2 shows that man was created for work. It is good, and God intends for us to work hard and well because we're made in his image. And when we each reach the end of a hard work day, I don't know if you've ever done just a ton of manual labor in a day, and you go home, you hit that bed, and you are out like a light. And it is amazing because you're just like, oh, this is the best sleep I've ever had in my life. You're not tossing and turning, worrying about the postage you stole or the money you embezzled. You sleep like a child held in the arms of their father. When I was a little kid, uh, my mom and my stepdad would sometimes take us to my stepdad's mom's house to stay there as they went for a date or whatever they were doing. I don't know. I was a little kid. I have no idea what they're doing. Anyway, my, grandma, my brother and I would be getting into bed, and my grandma would be like, stop making so much noise and whack us with the fly swatter. But eventually, she'd leave, and you know what I'm talking about, or you're a grandma who has done this. Um, so we'd finally fall asleep, and then my mom and my stepdad would come and pick us up. And when they can pick up, sometimes I'd wake up, sometimes I'd still be asleep, but there are lots of times I'd pretend to still be asleep. Because what they would do is they, when your parent picks you up and carries you to the you feel like there's no place safer in the world. You're held by them. And that's what sleep is like when we live and walk with God in discipleship. It is this thing where God is holding us and carrying us, and it's beautiful. We are walking with God in the midst of our work, which goes then to verse 3. It says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Now, that may seem like a left turn to you because, again, we want to compartmental our lives, but it's not. As we build our cities, as we do our work, as we watch our homes, they become filled with the family, and those families leave a heritage and a legacy. Again, Psalm 127 is written to normal people just like us, but it's a community that is going up to worship God. And in there, obviously, there are to be parents who have a whole lot of kids in there. So it's written to them. But also in that pilgrimage, there'd be a lot of single people. Sometimes single people read verses like this and they say, well, that's not written to me. Well, it actually is because all these pilgrims are going together. Reggie Joyner points out that almost all the great parenting passages in the Bible are also addressed to the community as well, not just to the parents. And he says there are two gardens in which children grow in terms of community. He says the first is obviously the home because the place where kids are going to learn about Jesus and what the gospel is and how to live this life in particular ways that honor and worship God are going to be in the home. It's by watching their parents. But he says, secondly, there's the community of the church. 
that comes alongside them. This is why at Element, we do these things called baby dedications. Some of you have done those. We get a, have a little kid who can't walk or make noise. They bring their parents up. And we, and we have everybody standing here and then have you guys stand in front of them. And we make commitments. We covenant with these parents to say, we will live in front of your child in a way that they will know what the gospel is. When we mess up or when we have hard time, they are going to see what it means for a group of people to live out the gospel in their lives. It is a community that comes together to help raise these kids as well. In Old Testament passages like Deuteronomy 6, it talks about kids teaching kids the way of the Lord, impressing on them the, skip, the scriptures, the importance of loving God by understanding his love for the community. And in the community, you will see brokenness and pain and how we deal through that. You will see grace and forgiveness and how we walk in that. But you will see, hopefully, us pointing to God above all idols. If you only come to a Sunday morning with your kids, or maybe you're watching online and doing some of the kids stuff that goes out, we might have your kids for 104 hours a week. As a parent, you will have your kids 8,736 hours a year. Who is best to help them to understand what the gospel really is? See, that's why it all relates to community and work and how we're living our lives because raising kids is hard. But in what we've talked about so far, you got to first ask this question. Will your kids know the gospel better by the end of this year by watching you? And will your kids know the gospel better by the end of this year by watching the community that you've attached yourself to? Does your community live in repentance in front of your children? Have you ever told your kids your testimony? This is what God has done in my life. Have you ever asked your friends to tell your kids their testimony about what God has done in their life? You don't just tell them, love God, you know, go learn these Bible things and sing these, these stories. But after services, when you ask your kids hopefully what they learned in their kids' classes, do you tell them also what God impressed upon you and what you learned when you were in here? Oh, I learned I need to work harder. <laughs> Do you teach them what, what you learn? Uh, C.J. Mahaney once wrote this, Effective teaching involves explaining to our children what they are already observing in our lives by example. Because your kids are already watching you. How you work, how you watch, how you rest, how we walk in the gospel every day in discipleship. And again, in marriages, you know, your kids will probably learn the gospel less by what you articulate to them and more by how you treat your spouse and your community and your coworkers and your neighbors. Do they see this unconditional love and graciousness, the faithfulness that you try to tell them about? Do they see that lived out? And do they see that lived out in the community that is around you? Unless the Lord builds the house. Verse 4, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Verse 5, blessed is the man who fills his, his quiver with them. Kids are a blessing. And we get to bless them by how we live in front of them. We get to teach them who sin, what sin is, who God is. We don't shy away from it. I mean, have your kids see that they're not perfect and that Jesus is perfect. I read somewhere this quote about raising kids, and this guy said this, It is more important that they meet my Savior than admire my righteousness. A perfect example will crush them. A tender Savior will save them. Which means in front of his kids, he's like, I don't have to act like I'm perfect. If I yell or get angry or get out of control, I can apologize to them and they can see what repentance actually looks like. Do you and your community, are they able to do this in front of kids? And the last line says this, he shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies at the gate. That is the connotation that these kids have grown and they understand and they are with him and the community around them. They stand together because of what they've gone through. This is a family or a community who have shared the joys and struggles of discipleship with God and walking with him and in grace they walk through the worst of it. 
and that is hard work. There are a lot of people, I'll tell you, who come to Element and their kids are a little bit crazy or they're a little bit crazy and sometimes they'll apologize for their families not being perfect. That's a big deal. Big deal. Guys, you know one of the reasons we have children's ministries at Element is because, yeah, your kids are loud and crazy. Okay, And it's one of the reasons we do that. And some people are like, oh, I don't want to put my kids over there. All of our teachers have been live scanned. We, we've done background checks on them. And we do that so that you can feel safe putting your kids somewhere for a little bit so you're not distracted. You come and listen and learn what God is trying to teach you and say to you. You get a few precious moments. When you have your kids next to you, you're like, oh, don't eat the gum under that chair and you know, don't roll on the floor and don't do this. You're so distracted. And this is why we do children's ministry, because we want to give you a few moments of relief to come in and hear what God is saying to you, so you then could go back and begin to teach them what God is doing in your life. That's why we do it. If you think God only loves perfect people or perfect families, you got to look with those he had to work with in the Bible. They're terrible. Sometimes people will read the Bible and they will say, what's up with all these horrible people? This is a terrible book. No, it's showing you what people are like. And if God takes the broken and dysfunctional and binds them up for his purpose and his glory, he can do the same thing for all of us as well. Because it is unless the Lord builds the house. That's where it's going. I mean, if God can write an amazing story of redemption through the people's dysfunction in the Bible, he can tell a beautiful story in every single one of us, in our homes and in the communities that we are a part of. As I said, this verse is written to a community like a church, a group of people who want to love and serve God. And they're going up and they're singing these songs on the way to the temple. And it really does show you the importance of all of our lives coming together in our work, in our watching, in our raising of children, that second garden, that second family. Sometimes people may even get up to the end of the journey thinking, oh man, I, I herded all my cats up the hill and, I, and we're at the temple. It's so great. God, look at all the effort I did to get here. Aren't you impressed? And someone's supposed to start this song, if God doesn't build the house, if God doesn't guard the city. And we're supposed to be like, oh, oh yeah, it's not about me. It's not about my effort. Jesus is at the center. See, Psalm 127 is insisting on a perspective in which our efforts are at the outskirts and God's work is in the center. Our jobs, our family, our service, it's all in worship of Him. That all comes from each part of this discipleship journey. And that's where true discipleship leads to in work and life. It's, it's not just building the city. It's not just building the family or, or keeping watch. It's continuing in them day by day as we walk with Him. Because it is God who keeps us by His will and His strength. I think the beauty of how we speak about the gospel is that we always say salvation is not by our work. It is by the work that God has done for us. And because he died, we actually rest in him, meaning we don't have to be anxious about everything because God holds us. We will live, we will work, we'll raise families. And when it feels overwhelming, what does Jesus say to us? Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. That's not a vacation. Because Jesus goes on and says, and take my yoke upon you and learn from me. A yoke is what you put on oxen as they plowed a field. So Jesus is saying, don't ever work. What he's saying is work with me and for me. Understand what I did for you out of love. And that will bring rest to your life because you don't need to impress me because I know you're not that impressive. I, I love you for, because I made you. And I am calling you back to myself, not because of what you've done, but because of what I've done and because I choose to love you. And I think when we live like that, we become liberated. And this is why the New Testament says that we are supposed to do all that we do for the glory of God. I think we love all of our work in our lives because Jesus says when we do it in a redeemed way, it honors him and it honors others because he did the ultimate work for us. 
I don't know if you see how all these things start to go together with repentance and trust and worship and serving and witness and steadfast in the midst of it and joy and how that all then steps into how we begin to work in the world. It all goes piece by piece. It really does to understand that as we walk with God, as he changes our heart, as he does these things in our lives, we begin to work differently. Not because we think that if we work really hard, Jesus is going to love us more. But we work simply because he first loved us and did the work for us. So we want to be out in the world living in a way that brings him glory and honor. Because one of the reasons every week we come to the place of communion is a reminder of the work that God did for us on our behalf. That we were people who could not save ourselves. We could not rescue ourselves. And so Jesus himself comes for us to rescue us exactly where we are. And that is why we encourage you to take the cracker in there and break it like Christ's body is broken. And you drink the grape juice as a reminder of his blood that was shed. His body was broken. His blood was shed to bring us back to himself. The gospel is the good news that God did the work of salvation for us. We cannot do it ourselves. And every time we try, we get caught up in this whole idea of a works mentality of I got to do these things to make God love me. No, God's like, I loved you. I redeemed you. I called you to myself. And now the stuff in the world, let's do this together. Let's work together. And when you stumble and fall, I'll still have you. And I'll pick you back up and we will keep going because he is the one who brings redemption. The band's going to come up. As they're going to invite you to take communion in that space, maybe you've been doing like a lot of work in your life, thinking I've got to work and make myself acceptable to God and do this and that and this and that and this is how God's going to love me. Well, communion today is a great place to remember it's not about what you do. It's about what he has done. And you can give up all the effort of trying to make yourself worthy in God's sight by what you do. You can simply trust what Christ has done. But then out of that, our lives do become different. We do, in response to what the gospel is, begin to live differently. The gospel is not how good we are. The gospel is how good God is in rescuing and saving us. But the results of the gospel are how we then begin to live our lives in this world. How our work become places of joy because we are there walking in discipleship with God out of the joy and grace he has given to us. And if you need prayer this morning, I mean, maybe you're in a place where you've been working so hard and thinking, God, this is not good enough for God. We would love to be able to pray with you about that so you'd understand what grace really is. And how you can come to Jesus and he will give you rest. Rest for your weary soul of thinking you have to have it all together. But then also the grace of understanding what it means to begin to live in this world in a way that honors him by how we live and how we walk in discipleship and how we work and how we raise our kids and how we interact with our neighbors and spouses and coworkers and all of that. Because it is meant to all come together. Our lives are not just compartmentalized pieces. They're a whole that come together and worship God in all things. And if you need prayer, they'd love to pray with you. There's offering boxes next to every single door. We give because God gave so much to us. Giving is simply part of our worship. We do not pass the plate. It is always a response to what he has done. God has given us the ability to work. And so in response, we are people who also give because God has been so gracious to us. I'd also encourage you to grab the sermon notes and take some of those questions today and this week and talk to one another about those. You know, walk into what what does work look like? What does living in community look like? How do all these things actually fit together? And how can we be a people who cease to maybe compartmentalize our lives so much and maybe see them more as a whole that worships God in all that we do because he has been so gracious to us. Let's be, let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would take us and move us as this people 
to be those who understand your great gifts that have been given to us. That as we understand the gospel, the work you did on our behalf to save us, that we be a people who don't focus upon our own work, but we focus upon you. And that would then change how we begin to live and work in the world. That we'd be a people who lay our entire lives before you. And that our labor and our work would not be something that we always feel like we have to do, but it'd be a response to the graciousness that we have first received. I ask that you teach us how to be this joy-filled people, understanding these steps of discipleship, that what we do and how we step out into the world would be responsive to who you are and what you've done. Change us to truly live as your people, to understand your grace and your hope, that we would be your hands and feet to this world, and that we'd stop compartmentalizing our, our lives so much and just live as the whole people you've called us to be and surrender to you in worship of you so the world would see your glory and how you change and make people new. We ask that in your son's good name. Amen. I'm going to ask Micah to lower the blinds, and as he does, just take a few moments as we go through these songs that you maybe would come to a place in your life where you lay down your labors of trying to make God love you by how good you think you are and simply trust Him for His goodness that has been spoken. Guys, we are a people who so often want to hide who we truly are from others because we, we think that if people find out how we stumble and fall, how we don't look as perfect as we do in our own minds, they're not going to love us. And that then translates sometimes into how we see God. And I have to tell you, God knows everything about you. Every little thing you've tried to hide, every secret sin you didn't want anybody to know, He knows. And yet He calls you to Himself anyway. Because He has decided to love us and call us to Himself. And that means every aspect of our lives can be laid before Him and lived in worship of who He is. And that, in turn, should lead to great joy for every single one of us. So that in turn, our labor and our work in the world, reflective of who he is, not because he loves us because we're working so hard and well, but because he is deemed to love us. And our work comes out of that first understanding. So today, ask God where you're laboring in ways that you don't have to. The things that you can set before him and then lay those things down and come to Him. Come and take communion, come back and then sing some songs with us about the goodness of who God is and His great rescuing work over us.